al primero de mayo. <risa> Hello and welcome to the The Cindy Podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Dismay Jr. Follow me on the Elon app at The Cindy, that's T-H-E-E-S-A-N-D. Podcast is also up there at The Cindy Podcast, all one word. If you no longer down with the Elon app, trust me, I get it. But again, well, like Threads had a quick little moment. Shout out to Spill, they tried, but nah, we still here on that Elon app. But if you don't rock with Elon, it's all good. Uh, follow me at the Cindy Podcast on the Zuckerberg app and the China app. Subscribe and rate to the podcast. Five stars, nonetheless. Tell a friend. Podcast available on all major podcasts and platforms. For all content, audio, and visual, hit up thesamd.com. YouTube. Subscribe and rate to the YouTube. Subscribe, like, comment, all that good stuff. Uh, Timeline T will be coming back at some point. Very, very, very soon. So if you're looking for the YouTube, link is in the podcast description. Musical production done by May First Music. Support him at soundcloud.com slash May First Music. Well, here's what I'm hoping we get in 2024. I have a pod idea and I'm going to give it away for the free. For the free ski. Free 99. I'm going to blow up the pod spaces with just this one idea. I'm going to do a pod. I want to commission a pod, sanction a pod, whatever you want to call it. I want to put together a pod with Kwame Brown, Cat Williams, and all the other podsters. If we can get Kai Irving, I'm with that too. We just need all the podsters to do a pod. Cat Williams with Kwame, with, you know, anyone else who just likes to be out here stirring the pot, just whoever, because the content is being consumed by the millions, okay? So I think if we put enough controversial folks together, we could even throw in one of the Bosa's to really shake things up. Let's get a Bosa out there to really, they, he could be like the Whitlock of the squad, like have a panel, like what Brandon Marshall was trying to do and has failed continuously. Let's see if we can create our own I am athlete, celeb athlete perspective pod that can really shake things up. I think we could get the juice away from Camden Mace. I think we could do that. We get Juice, Cat Williams, Kwame, and then get a bolsa in there to like level it out for diversity because we know how we're all about diversity in 2024, right? We all know it's all about the diversity in 2024. But anyway, so that's my idea. It's for the free ski. If any company wants to be out there, just make sure, you know, at least give me a credit, give me a byline in the, in the credits or whatever. I'm not even asking for bread. You know what I'm saying? I'll, I'll let y'all have that for the free ski. But that pod numbers out of here. Out of here. So. We're going to be doing some house clean, uh, housekeeping from the last pod, right? So I always ask if I'm talking about a topic and you want me to explore it more in depth, you know, give you the backstory, give you the full, you know, criteria of what it is, then just hit me up. So we have a few things that people wanted me to dig deeper on on this pod. So for one, one of the homies, shout out to Cody, he reached out and he wanted to know more about the Sean McDermott 9-11 thing. I do have the receipts. It's loaded up. We will get there. We will get to that in the very, uh, in this segment, we will get to that, right? 
But we also had a lot of college football feedback, a lot of college football feedback because, you know, college football arguably is the second most popular sport in this country. Okay, football is king by all the metrics, you know, all the metrics that matter, apparently. But again, if you haven't uh, tapping with me on the socials, especially on the China app and the Zuckerberg app, I'll put out some content over there to kind of dispel, you know, it's a kind of a trash narrative the way that the NFL tries to get off that their numbers are so much bigger and better than everybody else's. It's a very simple reason as to why. And you can find that out on the social media channels at these and the podcast on the Zuckerberg app and the China app. So again, link for that is in the description if you want to tap in over there. But people wanted to tap in about the college football. I got a lot of text about some of the college football stuff. And I even got some Michigan fans climbing, not only in the DMs, but also in the text. And one of them is, is I'll, I'll put, put one of them out there, MJ from the Not That Serious podcast. He's been on here as a guest. He's a big Michigan guy. He reached out, you know, talking his talk a little bit, trying to play a coy, wait and see and all of that. But I'm hearing a lot of narratives about how this Michigan team is, is you know, really just, uh, a, a team that we need to take seriously because they're doing things as kind of like an underdog. Like nobody believes that Michigan could do it. Like it's it's like somehow Michigan is somehow not supposed to be here. Like they're they're overcoming the odds. What odds are they speaking about? Because I have some data here. As a pushback to some of the Michigan people that were getting at me, like yeah. Michigan is a hard luck story. And like, it was amazing. Some of the stuff that I was seeing. And of course, these people won't own up to it now, but let's go ahead and just put the information on front street and make of it what you will. Okay. So let's go ahead and tap right into the screen. And this is information courtesy of Scott Shoshnik, editor in chief at Sportico. And he gets a lot of the sports business information accurately and concisely. So let's go ahead and dive deep into these numbers. Because, again, this is college football. So when we're talking college football and big-time college football at the level where you're competing for national championships, we're talking big money, right? So Michigan will play for the national title. Here's a peek at the money at the top of college football and the Wolverines in particular. So for those in the audio audience, I will read but those on YouTube, you can see as I scroll here and we're looking at a lot of diagrams and a lot of operating revenues. And this is going back to 2021 to 2022. OK, total operating revenues for one Michigan. OK. Operating revenue. This is straight up in regards to football on its own. One hundred and thirty one million dollars in total operating revenue for Michigan Football, just football on its own. Basketball, 21 million. But football on its own, $131 million to to for total operating revenue. Okay. Okay. So total operating expenses. Now here's where the math be mathing. The total operating expenses for Michigan football, it's 52 million. That's almost 80 million in revenue. 80 million in revenue. Okay. Now, total expenses for Michigan as a whole, the athletic department, right? Or for the university as a whole, excuse me, for the, uh, for the university as a whole, is 193 
million dollars. Again, the football team generates 131 million. The total expenses for the university as a whole is 193 million. So total revenue, if we count Michigan football, basketball, and other sports, and even non-sports specific revenue generating prospects, they get over $210 million. This is Michigan as a school, $210 million. And that's just one year. And their expenses are 193. So they're in the green every year. Or in this case, in the black. If you know, you know. Anyway, so Michigan football generates $131 million. How does that compare to other schools up there? Ilk. Well, let's go ahead and we, my man's did the science on that as well. So the largest FBS public school athletic budgets over the last five years. So again, I'm hearing a narrative of Michigan being the underdog team. We're not supposed to be here. Harbaugh got it out the mud, et cetera, et cetera. Largest FBS public school athletic budgets over the last five years. Ohio State's number one with over a billion dollars. Literally over a billion dollars for a public school athletic budget. Texas is second with 970 million. And who's their third? The underdog, the ones that, you know, we're not supposed to be here at $898 million, Michigan. Bruh. Alabama right behind them, 891 million, by the way. Texas A&M, who's probably spent the most and gotten the least for it, $813 million out there in College Station. That's how much money they have to put up just to get people to go to College Station. $813 million over the last five years. And the bulk of that is actually over the last three years with the whole Jimbo fiasco. But as you see here in, these, in, this, in, this, in this graph here, these are all heavy hitters. And they're all, a lot of them are all SEC or Big 10, Big 12, Big whatever they're going to end up being, Big 30, whatever they're going to end up being. You got Florida, Florida State, LSU, Penn State, Oklahoma, Texas A&M, Bama, Michigan, Texas, and Ohio State. Those are all big-time Power 5 schools. Those are all schools located in the South and in the Midwest. Make of that what you will. Okay? But it goes on. It goes on. Okay? Now we have largest FBS public school football budgets in the year 2021 to 2022. Alabama, far and away with the most expenses, $78.5 million. I thought Saban said he don't like NIL. He don't like NIL. But he spent the most, and again, this is public school football budgets. You see UW is up there, $70.5 million. Ohio State, $69 million. Georgia's up there, $61 million. Again, you're seeing the same schools or at least the same conferences Spitting out big bucks. This is all SEC. And then you got a sprinkle of ACC with Florida State and Clemson. And then you got a little Pac-12, which is no longer a thing, with UW. But there's Michigan there, right there at number 11, with $52.4 million. The hard luck story that is the Michigan Wolverines. We move on. Ticket sales. FBS public school football ticket sales. Now they got this called the big house for a reason, right? Like the, the, there's certain schools that they just pack them in by the droves to drive up these numbers. So 
in 2021, Michigan was, let's see, where are they at there? They're in the middle of the pack. So if we if we go into what we're looking at here, dark green is this weird Michigan color, right? It's a weird Michigan color. Is that supposed to be Michigan right there? I think it's supposed to be Michigan right there. We're going to go ahead and assume it's Michigan there because purple is UW and they're routinely in the same position. So is Alabama. So is Texas. But when you look at Michigan, though, because of the stadium and because of the fact that, you know, they, they had those rivalry games built in every single year, ticket sales, Michigan at the top, if not the top every single year. 50 plus million every year in just ticket sales alone. This is hard data. This is nothing. This is, you see the source here. The source says here, university documents. So this is their own documentation. And who knows? Maybe they cooked the books a little. Maybe they cooked the books a little. And this ain't even the real number. The real number could be actually higher. Okay. We've seen, you know, professional sports teams cook the books to hide the bread. Would it really behoove you? Would it really shock you? Would it really be a thing if you found out that a public university won the ilk of Michigan, which is out here being caught cheating and no one wants to talk about it, would actually be out here cooking the books financially as well? Allegedly. Allegedly. But anyway, so that's for the Johnny Come Lately, Michigan Wolverines, the hard luck story, you know, Harbaugh, all these players that have, you know, seemingly come out of nowhere, unheralded, et cetera, et cetera. Bro, the money that they're putting out here, $131 million in operating revenue. Football alone with only $52 million in expenses, $79, $80 million up. And the university as a whole is up $20 million because the football team is up $79, $80 million. So what does that mean? Michigan University needs Mich Michigan football to be top tier to keep the lights on. That is the issue that we're facing when we're talking about college sports. So when players are fighting in these NIL deals, when players are bouncing around and transfer portal year to year to year, and they're getting chastised for now thinking only of themselves. Well, how am I to not think of myself when I'm looking at an operation where Michigan football is keeping the lights on for Michigan University? $80 million in profit. Take away that $80 million. Michigan as a whole, as a university, is $60 million in the red, according to public documents. Now tell me why they're in the NIL heavily. Because they need the football team to be A1. So why are they scheduling cupcakes in their non-conference schedule? Because they need the football team to be A1. And why is Harbaugh and Connor Stallings a thing? The cheating scandal a thing because they need to keep the lights on because Michigan football is operating in the green while everything else is operating at a loss or in the black. You tell me how this is supposed to go. So when we're looking at college sports and what it brings together and what it actually means. When we're talking about college football, when, when, when we're talking about the money and why is the money so important, not just for the players, but for all the players, not just for the five star and the four stars who have a name that they can leverage for name and likeness, while all the players who contribute to this football program should be getting paid, it's because it's literally keeping the lights on at Michigan.
It's literally keeping the lights on. There would be 60 mil in the red roughly without the football team. So why should only the top players on the football team get paid when it's the entirety of the football program as a whole that are keeping the lights on? Again, you want to reach out, reach out to me directly. I ain't hard to find at the same D T H E E S A N D. But the numbers, the math be mathing. So we need to get into Sean McDermott of the Buffalo Bills. He had a moment a few weeks ago that kind of snuck under the radar. Not too many people have spoken about it publicly, but when I teased it on the last pod, definitely a few people reached out. I was like, yeah, go more into that. I didn't hear anything about that. And I know why you didn't hear anything about that. It's because they didn't want you to know what Sean McDermott was trying to get off. Uh, but salute to Cody and the others who were out there and they reached out about that. So let's go ahead and tap into Sean McDermott. First of all, there was a reporting done by Tyler Dunn. Um, he did some reporting and did an extensive piece on the Buffalo Bills and specifically Sean McDermott in regards to how the last few seasons has gone, the evolution of Josh Allen or the alleged evolution of Josh Allen, and then getting into some of the behind the scenes stuff like, you know, the firing of Ken Dorsey and all of that, right? But this little nugget here was kind of snuck in there and wasn't really publicized. So again, for the audio only audience, I will be reading. For those on YouTube, you can scroll and pause and take the screenshot as I read uh, along, right? So in this piece, uh, McDermott was addressing his team, right? So at St. John Fisher College in Pittsburgh, New York, McDermott's morning address began innocently enough. He told the entire team they needed to come together. But then sources on hand say he used a strange model. The terrorist on September 11th, 2001. He cited the hijackers as a group of people who were all able to get on the same page to orchestrate attacks to perfection. So now me playing this drop has nothing to do with 9-11, but it has everything to do with the fact that Sean McDermott tried to galvanize a team in the National Checkdown League, the CDL. He tried to galvanize a team that has been underachieving at times and been beset by injuries throughout. He tried to galvanize a team by talking about 9-11. We need to band together like the terrorist, not like the first responders, not like civilians who were helping each other pull each other to safety and saving lives no not like them like the terrorist <laughs> this is your man's sean mcdermott leader of men the piece goes on to say one by one mcdermott started asking specific players in the room questions what tactics do you think they use to come together? So not only is he trying to tell a team of young men to work together like the terrorist on 9-11, but he's now asking specific players, hey, what do you think they did to plan 9-11? What tactics do you think? So now he's going deeper into it. So it clearly was not a faux pas. He did not misspeak. He was not misquoted. 
a young player tried to methodically answer, what do you think their biggest obstacle was? A veteran player answered, TSA. Which mercifully lightened the mood. Like the, fade, the, the phrase reigning the room is a thing, right? He walked into a room full of men. Football, by and large, is mostly patriotic, is mostly spiritually based. He walked into a room of people that are mostly from the South and from the middle America and wanted them to act like the terrorist on 9-11. Let's galvanize as a base, as a force like the terrorist on 9-11. And he says that as the coach of the Buffalo Bills, newsflash, Buffalo is located where? In New York. What state and what city has the teams wear all types of paraphernalia every 9-11? New York. So the head football coach of the best team in New York is asking his players to galvanize and band together and be strategic like the people that flew planes into New York City's largest landmark in 2001. <sighs> I'm just going to leave it at that. Y'all wanted more? Y'all wanted me to talk about it. Y'all wanted me to give you the, the specifics on Sean McDermott. There it is. Sean McDermott used a morning address to galvanize his team. And to use that, he referenced banding together and being strategic and having people all on the same page to orchestrate an attack like the terrorist on 9-11. You're welcome. Crazy thing, we were in a bubble. This goes back to the bubble. Me and Brown were in the bubble. We were watching the game. I think it was it was Miami and Boston again. And uh, we were sitting in the room watching the game. And like I said, it went down to the wire. So Brown's like, if we if we get Miami, I got Spo. And if we get Boston, you got Brad. So that was kind of our mindset. It's like, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to beat the Heat or we're going to beat the Celtics. It was more so if we can out-coach or, you know, if we can out-coach or out-play the coaches on that staff in particular, which two guys we felt that we knew pretty good, we were going to so basically, that is uh, the God, Rajon Rondo, the real point God, uh, talk about his time in the bubble with the Lakers and saying how him and Braun at one point had a conversation leading through the run to the finals where Celtics and the Heat were in the conference finals and they're basically trying to navigate, okay, who's going to take lead in regards to breaking down, scouting, coaching, setting up the offense, running the offense against these particular teams. And if it was going to be the Celtics, Rajon would handle that. And if it was going to be in Miami, Braun was going to handle that. One, that shows amazing basketball IQ. That shows amazing trust. And that shows the layers of which these players really be out here trying to get it off. And these players think they know more than coaches. And not necessarily think they know, but in particular, these two, these two actually do know more than most coaches, right? All of that goes to say to this. Why is Darvin Ham still the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers? Why is Darvin Ham still the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers? Because if we go to the standings, 
The Los Angeles Lakers are 17 and 18. I think they've lost, what, three, four games in a row. They lost again to the very Miami Heat that Braun thinks he can outcoach in terms of Spo. He lost to that same Miami Heat team last night. And, you know, the team did not look good. And Rob Palenka's got a move to make. Rob Palenka has a move to make. And he needs to make that move quick, fast, in a hurry because nothing is going to change this team. I don't care if they make a trade at the deadline. I don't care if they go crazy in the buyout market. Nothing is going to help this Los Angeles Laker team reach the apex of what they feel they should be by having LeBron James playing at the level that he's playing at, even as he's creeping close to 40, along with Anthony Davis. Okay? Yes, they won the in-season tournament, and everyone was going crazy about that and how that could be the kickoff point. Nothing has been kicked off but these losses since the in-season tournament. So... That did not work. That did not end up being a thing. And it really just comes down to Darvin Ham doesn't know what to do with this rotation. I don't pretend to be a Laker fan, but because it's LeBron, because y'all know my affinity for one, uh, Anthony Davis, I keep an eye on them. And because the Lakers are Lakers, man, they, they have a big fan base. And so you talk Lakers, that, that means numbers by and large. So but if we're looking at a team that did not have Rui Hachimura, did not have D'Lo, and had Anthony Davis out here getting 43 minutes damn near, and he's giving you 29-17 with six dimes, three steals, and five blocks, and you take a L, and Bron is out here 6 of 18, 0 for 6 from 3, by the way. That's y'all, King. Nine dimes, six boards, and again, 38 minutes, but only scored 12 points. Didn't get to the free throw line, didn't make a three. Six of 18 from the floor. And then you had Austin Reeves, who got the bag and has been hooping. But again, he's Austin Reeves. So 24 on 7 of 12, a couple threes, got to the line. At least only him and him and Anthony Davis only the ones that got to the line. Eight dimes for him. LeBron is now the de facto point guard. The de facto point guard took the most shots last night. Call it what you will. They're making a big deal about LeBron now is officially the point guard, which he low-key has been. LeBron has been the point guard and the coach in every organization he stepped foot in. The only one where he got a little bit of pushback was down in South Beach with Riley and Spolstra. So much so that y'all don't, y'all don't, y'all haven't forgotten that LeBron tried to get Spolstra up out of there, right? LeBron tried to get Spolstra up out of there, and D-Wade had to come and tell him, like, hey, 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 yeah, that's not how we do things here. That's not, I know you think you him, and, like, you are him, but even upstairs, you're not him. What, what, what were they, 7 and 8 or 9 and 8 or 8 and 9, some craziness? They were, like, hovering around 500, a game over, a game under, and a lot of heat was being put on Spolstra. And a lot of that heat was being manufactured because of LeBron's connects to the media. This guy can't handle it. He can't handle all these egos. He can't handle all this talent. He doesn't know how to orchestrate it. Now Spo is spoken about in a God tier in terms of the coaching ranks. You won't find too many people in the basketball world who will say anything negatively about Eric Spolstra as a coach. That wasn't... That wasn't the narrative when LeBron and them first touched down there to South, to South Beach and they got off to a rocky start. So now LeBron is now officially the point guard with the Lake Show and he goes out there and he's taking 18 shots. 
Reeves gave you 24 points on 12 shots. And AD giving you 29, 17, 6, 5, and 3. And still didn't take the most shots. Because the most shots on the team went to the guy that was just named the point guard. Okay. How do you fix this? Let's say the Lake Show goes out there and fires Darvin Ham. One, who is going to step in to be the de facto coach? And if I could just lead off this segment by playing a soundbite of Rajon Rondo and LeBron talking about how they were going to be the ones to break down the other opponent's coach, then what coach can Rob Palenka go out there and bring in that can actually, actually galvanize this team to play right? What scheme are you going to cook up for Braun? Essentially, is the job. Vogel came in there and basically said, I got the defense. Braun, Rajan, y'all got the offense. What coach can come in there and have that type of acumen and wherewithal and self-awareness to understand you're never going to be the coach of a LeBron James team? David Blatt learned, didn't he? David Blatt learned. Man's then then he just came back. He finally just got back to the States, I believe. Not even as a head coach. I think he's on somebody's bench as an assistant. That man had to go back to where he came from. Was sequestered for a few years before he could double back to the NBA because of the negative impact he had being with Bron. So th this is what it comes down to. Who, I'm assuming, is a free agent coach because I don't think that, I mean, if they empower somebody that's already on that bench, that's like an assistant, I don't think that goes well. I love Phil Handy. I think he's a great trainer. I think he's a great guy that can fix guys in terms of player development. I don't know if he's a coach. I don't know if he's a coach like that. So I don't know anyone that's currently in the Laker organization who can come down and sit on that bench and really galvanize his base. So who can it be outside the organization who can come in? Y'all know how I feel about Earl Watson. I've been very, very loud how I think Earl Watson deserves another chance to coach. I think that this is too hot even for Earl Watson to pull back up. I mean, had that Mark Jackson pod started yet? Maybe Mark Jackson could come out here and try to, you know what I'm saying? If he's allegedly not blackballed. I've, people have been telling me he's not blackballed, saying there's other things going on. I was like, no, 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 no. I know the things of why Mark Jackson's not coaching. Y'all just don't want to say them out loud. And he don't want to say them out loud. I know why he's not coaching. Or I put like this, I have it on very good authority, allegedly, why he's not coaching. There's a reason why he's potting for Cam and Mace, okay, instead of on an NBA sideline, okay? It's very, it's very obvious reasons. Google is your friend. Again, if that's another thing y'all want me to talk about here and explain to you transparently why he's not on the sidelines, I can do that. But I'm telling you, Google is your friend. But back to these Lakers, right? Because this Western Conference is topsy-turvy. The Minnesota Timberwolves, I have not talked about them at length. And why would I, right? Because they're the Timberwolves. I mean, the only thing to talk about them, the reason is like Ant-Man. Ant-Man has gone Ant-Man. He's ridiculous, right? Now, OKC is a thing here as the two seed, you know, when we're talking about them being 23 and 10. If you're looking at the top of the West, the top four teams in the West are teams we categorically do not trust historically. The Timberwolves are one. The Thunder are two. 
You have the reigning defending champions. Denver Nuggets have three. And then you have Kawhi and them who have been destroying it, especially since they got James Harden and especially since they made the lineup change of Russell off the bench and the beard as the starting point guard. The Clippers have looked like the Clippers that Steve Ballmer thought he was getting when he spent two Billy all them years ago. So the top four teams are the T-Wolves, the Thunder, the Nuggets, and the Clippers. Now, the bottom four, as of right now, you're talking about the Kings, the Pels, the Mavs, and the Houston Rockets. Why are we not talking about the job Mr. Neil Long has done? Mr. Neil Long, that team, they can't play a lick of defense, but them boys just hooping up and down. Them boys are putting some points up. And then you got the Suns with KD. Bradley Bill is finally coming back, and he's putting points up, and the big three is big three. But again, this is just like last year. Last year, we had a lot of teams hovering in that 8 to 12 range that we all thought, well, if that team can ever figure it out, they're dangerous. They got all these names. And we're running through, we're running into the same thing all over again. The Suns are nine, two games over 500. The Lakers are next at 10, one game under 500. Y'all have y'all Warriors, a game under 500 at the playing at 11. It's been a whole weekend change since I came out here roasting them. Nothing has changed. So much so that now Steve Kerr has had the talk with Clay. Let me see if I can find that here on the fly. Let me come off the screen here for a second. Let me see if I can find that tweet because it was pretty sad and depressing to hear Clay talking about his own decline and demise. And he's been the biggest guy to try to like fight and push against that. But now he had to have the talk <laughs> with Steve Kerr. And I guess Steve Kerr gave him that reality check. And tell him, look, bro, you're not him no more. Not the way you think you are. You can still hoop. You can still a dude. You're still a, a, a top gunner in this league. You can still a guy that can shoot at a high level. But when it comes to all this other stuff, like, yeah, that is not you. So let's get into this with uh, Clay Thompson here. I'm assuming he's talking about his uh, come back to the screen. Let me run, run that back and rewind it for the audio only audience. Clear that up. Move this out the way. All right, cool. This is Clay Thompson talking just after the game last night. And the preface is Clay Thompson revealing about a conversation he had with Steve Kerr regarding the need to improve his negative energy be a better mentor and enjoy the last chapter of his career rather than obsess over stats and performance. All right, let's go ahead and get into that. Uh, well, Steve and I had actually a great conversation yesterday and uh, that helped me relax a lot. Sometimes I forget just how successful and how lucky I've been to be a part of championship teams and all-star games and gold medals. When you want to get back to that level so badly, it can kind of get in your own way. And rather than forcing it, we had a conversation about just enjoying this last chapter of my career and how lucky I truly am to still be playing this game and do it at a high level and being a better mentor for these young guys, me by example having my energy right every game. And he helped me realize I do have negative energy, how that affects the team in a poor manner. So we had a great conversation. That just helped me change my whole mindset 
forget about shooting splits or points per game or all-star games. And just to enjoy being in this Warriors uniform and appreciate what we built because it's such a rare opportunity for any professional athlete to be a part of so much success and to try and pass that torch to the young guys and keep this thing going. All right, so basically, as you see, Clay looks sad as hell. Clay looks sad as hell. Like, he did not want to have that conversation with Steve Kerr. And I think Steve Kerr had to give him that reality check. Like, yo, dogs, we're probably not going to give you that extension. We're probably not going to give you that last bag. We, we can't give you and the habitual nut hitter that extended bag. Like, we can't. We can't do that. This doesn't look like the energy of a man that had a good conversation with his coach and feels good about, okay, I'm at the end of my career. This looks to be a man that realizes, damn, I'm not going to finish a warrior. Steph's going to finish a warrior. The habitual nut hitter is going to finish as a warrior. You know, goddamn Eagle Dollar is going to finish as a warrior, but not me. I'm going to have to toil around. Or maybe he walks out to the sunset. He can end as a warrior. If he wants to let his contract expire and just retire, he can retire. He can walk away a warrior. But if he wants to keep hooping, that's probably not going to happen as a warrior next year. Because he's not the same. He doesn't mean as much to the, you know, pedigree as much as he thinks he's a part of the, uh, he's a part of the legacy of the Warriors and he is. Let's be clear, right? But clearly him and Draymond are essentially in the same type of situation. They're both at the end of their careers. They both mean the most to only the Warriors. Yet the Warriors gave the habitual nut hitter a four-year, $100 million contract as a thank you. And it's looking all signs of pointing towards Clay is not going to receive that from the Warriors. So instead of being the Debbie Downer, go ahead and pick, that, pick your energy up. Pick your spirits up. Stop worrying about your numbers. Your numbers are not going to be your numbers because you are physically not the same player you used to be. I literally spoke about this on the last episode of how Clay is not that dude no more. He's not the dude that's going to give you 60 on 11 dribbles. He's not that. He's not going to lock up your best offensive wing player. He's not that anymore. This is who he is. The dude that looks sad in post games talking about how he's in the last chapter of his career. And that's no shade. That's the reality. That's why it's a reality check. You're Clay. You're at the end, bro. I know you think you should be held in higher regard. I know you low-key probably are tight at all the stuff Steph has gotten and people just associate the warrior success with Steph first and you second. Where if we're really going to keep it a buck, you are more integral to a lot of the things that the dubs got off in their run than Steph. And I know that's hard to believe because Steph is Steph and we keep hearing about the threes and bunches and MVPs and all that stuff. But Clay. What he was able to bring offensively and defensively was way more impactful than what Steph shooting threes and bunches was able to do. Steph couldn't get off what he, what, what he was able to get off. Steph could not get off what he was able to get off offensively if he didn't have someone playing lockdown defense and also being bombs away like Clay. He couldn't have been able to have the freedom to have the free reign to run around curls and pin downs all damn game, just hunting for threes. If Clay is not on the other end, locking up the other team's best offensive player in the backcourt. 
that's got to burn clay. But we don't make the rules. Steph was elevated to God tier status and clay was left off the 75 best player list. We don't make the rules. He's got to live with that. Maybe when he had the top 100, maybe he'll be in that. Maybe. That's not a guarantee. There's some real things going on here in this Western Conference. The Eastern Conference is dead as hell. People are trying to make things about Milwaukee. I don't care. Like, not yet. Like, you know, the, what they lost for the fourth time to the Pacers. I mean, Dame don't play defense. Like, that. that's just... Y'all can ask Portland about that. Like, Portland could have told you if you thought Dame was going to come in and play similar defense. Similar. Not better. Similar defense to Drew Holiday. You're smoking. You're smoking. But everything to me is the storylines about the Western Conference. The Knicks made a big trade. Everyone's going crazy about the big trade. OG, OG, OG. Have y'all watched OG? Like, there was talk of this is now a big three. With OG Brunson and, and Randall, the, the main thing here is that R.J. Barrett is gone. Clearly, R.J. Barrett and Julius Randall could not play together. Clearly. Julius has been crazy numbers ever since that trade. Julius is looking like he was a Pell or a Laker again. Now that R.J. is gone. So clearly the spacing or R.J. wanting to rock because R.J. wants to validate himself being the third overall pick was clearly being the issue here with Nick's tape. So Knicks tape makes a move. That's done. Toronto also has won a couple games in a row. But again, no one cares. No one cares. Maybe now this puts the Donovan Mitchell stuff to bed. Maybe that's a, a, a subplot to the fact that OG and Anobi is now a Nick. Is that the pieces are now really not there for a trade for Donovan Mitchell unless Donovan comes over and free agent. And even then, that's not a good roster either. Even if you just plug in Donovan with OG, Jalen Brunson, and Julius Randle, that's not, you know, the whole notion of the Knicks are a superstar away. The Knicks have been, the Knicks have never been in a position where they, where they have had multiple superstars. The closest they have had in my lifetime has been Sprewell and Allen Houston. That's the closest they've been to having multiple superstars. The Knicks as a franchise, whether that's because of ownership, can't speak to that. Although I can certainly take a hypo, uh, 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 educated guess. I could take a hypothesis. I could take an educated guess as to why I think that is. But if you look at the history of the Knicks, whether it was Bernard King, then Ewing, then if you want to go into Spreewell Houston, then you want to mix in some Marbury, then you want to go to my man, my mellow Carmelo Anthony. And now it's been, you know, maybe it's Julius Randle. Maybe it's Jalen Brunson. No. If you have to guess, no. You don't have one. You don't have a one. The Knicks primarily operate as a franchise that deals with we have one guy and we're going to build everything around that one guy because ownership only wants to pay one guy. That's just, that's why they don't have two. That's why they only have three. That's how it's laughable when the OG trade comes down and they're trying to put up a, a little meme of Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, and OG and Anobi saying this is the new big three. Laughable. Because the Knicks would never pay a big three. 
That's why when Braun and them were flirting with the idea of coming here, it was a grand opening, grand closing uh, 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 meeting that they had with the Knicks brass. Once they learned, oh, you're not trying to pay all of us, only, oh, okay, yeah, they can't work here. That's why they gave all the money to Hoomst, Amari Sotomayor, one guy. So, I mean, that's what, that's, that's, that's just what the Knicks do. If y'all can't read between the lines and see what that really is, then, you know, we really can't be talking basketball together. The Carolina Panthers have a problem on their hands, and their problem is someone they can't get rid of, and that is the owner, David Teppers. You cannot fire an owner. You cannot uh, bully an owner. The only way to get rid of an owner is to overpay him for what he bought and hopes that he take that deal and walk away. Mr. Daniel Snyder way. It's a Jerry Richardson way. You can name plenty of owners that have been forced to walk away. Donald Sterling, they all get their bag in the end to go away and hide. So David Tepper is the latest. Now that Daniel Snyder is officially about the paint, we now have a new official most despised owner in the league, and it's David Tepper. Despite what Jim Irsay does, David Tepper takes the cake, and he threw a drink on a fan while on the road in Jacksonville. Okay, so he was on the road and the home fans were giving him shit, and he decided to throw a drink at a fan. And for that action, something that a player would be, you know, suspended, contact, conduct detrimental to the team, et cetera, et cetera, David Tepper was fined $300,000 for his, quote, unacceptable conduct in Jacksonville. And I'll read the quote here. I'll go to the screen real quick for those on YouTube. Uh, all NFL personnel are expected to conduct themselves at all times in ways that respect our fans and favorably reflect on their team and the NFL. Okay, so what that does it say is that that 300000 for a billionaire like David Tepper's is the equivalent of a dollar and I think 77 cents or 17 cents to you and I. Okay, that was the fine. Someone finds you $2, you could get off some wild, disrespectful shit. I think we would all take that chance and throw a drink in somebody's face if we knew it would only cost us $2 at our job, okay? If our job would only find us $2 for doing some wild shit, I think we would all be out here big wilding at the gate. So David Tepper is a thing that we have to understand is a rite of passage, okay? If we go to his own Wikipedia page and look up some of the things that he has gotten off, um, look. Since buying the Panthers in 2018, okay, 2018, we just hit 2024, okay? So he's bought the Panthers in 2018. They have compiled a 30 and 63 record and six head coaches in that span. As you see here, even on the Wikipedia, Tepper has been described as one of the NFL's worst owners with the Panthers going into a downturn since his ownership began. He stopped building a practice facility for the team in South Carolina. The team plays in Charlotte. He's building a practice facility in Rock Hill, South Carolina. But he stopped building that facility after claiming that the city didn't hold up their end of the deal. He had his real estate arm declare bankruptcy over the failed project and was forced to demolish the half-built facility. This is your man's David Teppers. And let's not forget how he got the team in the first place, as we see up here at the top of the screen. Uh, he got the team from the original owner and founder, Jerry Richardson. And Jerry Richardson, Jerry Richardson was forced to sell his Steelers shares 
I don't know what to do with this part, but basically he got the team. Oh, he's forced Tepperhead's shares in the Pittsburgh Steelers. So, okay. Jerry Richardson was caught out here big wowing in that same Carolina front office. Jerry Richardson was out here asking to see pictures of women's feet, allegedly. Amongst other <laughs> nefarious, scandalous things. Okay. So Jerry Richardson was out here, got caught up in a Me Too-like situation and was forced to sell the team. And he sold it now to David Teppers, who has compiled a 30 and 63 record, gone through six head coaches, and now he's throwing drinks on paying customers. This is why we can't give naysayers money. This is exactly why we can't give naysayers money. Because when you give naysayers money, they are asking to see pictures of women's feet and they're throwing drinks on fans. This is why you can't give naysayers money. You can't give naysayers money because they're going to pop up at school rallies pretending to not be a part of that school all while they're trying to be all in the mix and then years later claim that they were just there as an innocent bystander. This is why you can't give naysayers money. You cannot give naysayers money because they're going to pull up to Rock Nation brunches wearing Air Force Ones in the 2020s acting like it's popping and they're going to be out here at masseuses getting rug and tucks. You cannot give naysayers money. I want you to understand that. You cannot give naysayers money. Because if you give naysayers money, they're going to be out here being caught, being pulled over for DWIs while having a briefcase full of cash and a bag full of pills. You cannot give naysayers money. You cannot. You cannot give naysayers money. You cannot give naysayers money because they're going to be out here on yachts trying to convince Tom Brady that he could retire, unretire, buy a piece of team, unretire, then play quarterback by your team, for your team, all the while you have a black coach and you're telling him, oh, yeah, you got a tank. You cannot give naysayers money. So I just, I just want to make sure that we have that loud and clear. You cannot give naysayers money. This is what happens when you give naysayers money. From Jerry Richardson to David Tepper. Daniel Snyder. Jerry Jones. The Bidwell family. We can go up and down the whole list. Oh, let's not forget. You can't give naysayers money. When the owner of the Buffalo Bills is out here saying that blacks need to start their own league if they want fair and equal representation in front offices and coaching ranks. You can't give naysayers money. And while we're talking about naysayers, let's go ahead and talk about that naysayer, uh, Sean Payton. Sean Payton is out here, and we can go ahead to the screen and jump in while the homie uh, RC, Ryan Clark, kept it a bean on the set of, uh, what was this, Get Up? Yeah, let's be honest. Sean Payton has behaved as a thug since he became the coach of the Denver Broncos. Immediately when he gets in the building, he starts to undercut Russell Wilson personally and professionally from his first press conference on. So again, Sean Payton behaving like a thug. This is this is the type of behavior like a naysayer. You know, there's a lot of confusion as to what is a naysayer. This is naysayer behavior. What Sean Payton, like RC said, B 
behaved as a thug. Thug, naysayer. Sean Payton is behaving like a naysayer. So th this is what is happening here. If we get into the whole Russell Wilson story, and unfortunately, I don't have enough time to dive deeper into it, so I will save that for the next episode. Just the Russell Wilson piece, because there's a lot of union stuff there involved, and y'all know how I give it up about union. So I, I've been doing the research. I've been doing the science. I'm saving that because I, I want some room to breathe for that one. But the Sean Payton piece specifically, this is a man that was involved in the alleged you know, power play with the Dolphins and Tom Brady. Remember, it was supposed to be Sean Payton and Tom Brady pulling up to save the Dolphins when Stephen Ross, that naysayer, was out here on a yacht, you know, colluding with the whole Michigan brass. Meanwhile, Brian Flores is there like, I just got here. I'm trying to keep my gig and God want me to lose on purpose. Like, it was a whole thing. So the package deal was Flores take these L's, we're going to go ahead and tank. We're going to have Brady pull up, become the owner, do that whole thing, have that whole press conference. But really what he's doing is he's going to, you know, be a front office exec, handpick the players that he wants, and then magically he's going to unretire, get Tua up out of there. And now, oh, by the way, now I also got Sean Payton who's pulling up. And now we got a Sean Payton-Tom Brady dynamic duo running around with Tom Brady's mans in them with the Dolphins in a power play that he got some bread off of because he's going to buy a piece of the team. So all of this was in play on the naysayer yacht with Stephen Ross. So Sean Payton, who was out there on TV as a as a analyst, and he was not very good at his job. They had him and Breeze. They both flamed out because their acumen doesn't translate on camera. So Sean Payton has had a little bit of an edge to him ever since. Like if, if you talk to people that were around the Saints when not when it was good, when it was not so good, you heard a different story, a different narrative being painted about Sean Payton than what was ultimately put out there initially. You know, onside kicking the Super Bowl, all the fam, the, the the Katrina stuff and all of that stuff. It was all roses for Sean Payton. But the underbelly there, the undercurrent there, when things were not so good, a very different story. So I just wanted to sneak that one in here because I don't want this to go untalked about. Sean Payton behaving like a naysayer or a thug, according to RC, since it became the coach of Denver Broncos. I will definitely get into that more in depth on the next episode of the DCMD podcast. But I just wanted to get that off real quick. Like you can't give these naysayers money. Sean Payton got, they, we still don't know how much he actually got, but we know the number is damn near the John Gruden number. Allegedly like Gruden got 10 years, hundred mil from the Raiders reportedly because of the Walmart money that's been coming in with the new Denver Bronco ownership and, you know, coaches' salaries are not capped like player salaries. Hello, NFLPA. But Sean Payton is out here getting a lot of money and he can't have another guy that's also making a lot of money and having power and influence of Russell Wilson. So that's why the whole Russell Wilson thing has been, you know, a thing that has played out in front of us over the last couple of weeks. So, I will leave y'all at that. I will put a pin in that, but please believe next episode, we're getting into the Russell Wilson shit and it's, and it's deep. There's some union stuff there. It's a lot there. Just trust me on that. But Sean Payton, yet another naysayer. And that's why we can't give these naysayers money.
you know what it is. Appreciate y'all for listening. Uh, glad I was able to pull back up, trying to keep current, trying to make sure I keep putting out the content for y'all to consume. Another episode, uh, I will be tapping in again next week. Uh, so stay locked in, stay, stay subscribed. I appreciate the positive feedback and I'm glad people have reached out saying, I'm glad you're back, we've been waiting, et cetera, et cetera. Very appreciative of that, appreciative of new listeners, new viewers, and we're trying to spread this thing and uh, really build up this, this community that I'm trying to build here. So always appreciative of the f uh, feedback, positive and negative, you get those shots, this is all good. I got thick skin, soft skin, but thick skin. Um, but so, for the CMD Podcast, I'll let y'all next week. I'm the CMD. Salute.